Welcome to Ordinary People, the podcast that provides a platform and voice to ordinary people by bringing together a diverse panel to discuss and educate on the issues of today and tomorrow in a free exchange of culture, thoughts and ideas. Good evening and welcome to Ordinary People, the podcast that invites members of the community to share their thoughts and observations on the issues of today and tomorrow. My name is Peter Jones and I'm your host. I was born and raised in Birmingham and lived most of my life around Birmingham. For the last 30 years, I've worked in the IT education sector. I'm a volunteer for Birmingham-based charities and good causes. And I'd like to put a bit of a shout out there for Love Brum, Let's Feed Brum, Birmingham Civic Society for all the good work uh, they do. Uh, I've got uh, an exceptional panel with me uh, this evening to discuss tonight's topic, uh, which is are the black community treated differently by the UK police and justice system? So without any further ado, I'll ask the the panel to uh, quickly introduce themselves. Earl, do you want to kick off? Yeah, hi hi, Pete. Hi everyone. I'm Earl Hibbert. I've lived most of my life uh, in the Worcestershire and surrounding area. I've worked uh, in recruitment, learning and development for the last um, 30 years, but the last 17 of those have been specifically within the apprenticeship space. Really pleased to be part of tonight's session and hope I can add value to the discussion and debate. Thank you, Will. Excellent. Uh, Graham. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is uh, Graham Moffat. Uh, originally from Birmingham, um, been over in the Black Country now since the uh, early 90s. Um, I was a police officer in West Midlands Police for 30 years, uh, retired seven years ago, um, currently a governor at a, a local primary school. And uh, I'd just like to say uh, thanks for the invite. My pleasure. Excellent. Kirk. Right. My name's Kirk Dawes. I retired from the West Midlands Police in 2004, having joined the, the service in the uh, mid-70s. Uh, and uh, I really, following retirement, I became a mediator negotiator, which was really an extension of some of the work that I'd been doing in the police service around uh, people who were involved in the use of extreme violence. So my mediation negotiation stemmed from work, where I was sent to a number of different countries around the world, and in particular Northern Ireland, where I um, got to see how mediation can act as an intervention in, in crime. Uh, I'm a father of six. I now live in a, a leafy suburb, let's say. And uh, thanks for the invite. My pleasure. Excellent. Thank you, Kirk. Uh, and Maxwell. Hi, I'm Maxwell Cookhorn. Uh, I live in Handsworth and I've been a supply teacher for the best part of 15 years, um, generally, generally specialising in mathematics and working with kids with learning difficulties or emotional issues. Superb. Thank you, everybody, and welcome. Okay, so tonight's topic, um, what I want to do before we start uh, the discussions is just lay down, uh, you know, some facts and a, and a bit of a marker. Uh, okay, so um, you can find the, the stats on the gov.uk website in terms of uh, ethnicity, facts and figures for arrests. Uh, and these figures are from sort of 27, 2018, in which they say that um, black people were over three times as likely to be arrested 
as white people in that period. And per thousand people, uh, there were 35 arrests for every thousand black people, uh, 10 arrests for every 1,000 white people. And in the Asian community, 12 arrests of Asian people in every thousand, mixed race, 19 uh, for every thousand. Overall, men were six times as likely to be arrested as women. Um, there were 22 arrests for every 1,000 men and four arrests for every 1,000 women. Black women were more than twice as likely to be arrested as white women. Uh, there were seven arrests for every 1,000 black women, three arrests for every 1,000 white women. As I say, those figures are from the 2017-2018 gov.uk um, report. Also, um, an interesting article uh, came out at the end of July uh, in The Guardian um, by a reporter called Athua Hirsch. Uh, the article was titled, Who Will Hold the Police to Account for Racist Acts That Criminalise a Community? And some of the key points that she, uh, she makes is, uh, in terms of stop and search, black people are 10 times more likely uh, to be a victim of stop and search. There are, are some real interesting um, examples that she gives of 12-year-old boys, 12-year-old black boys that were, that were stopped uh, by police in, in London, I believe. One was walking with his mother and handcuffed by police. Uh, another one was playing with a toy gun in the garden and a, a couple of dozen police raided the house after a report made by a member of the public of someone with a, with a, with a handgun. So, you know, in, in terms of the black community, I, I guess we don't find those that surprising. Um, and I don't know whether that's a good thing or a, or, or a bad thing. So has anyone got any sort of views in terms of, you know, the, the black community and whether you know, we're right to feel on the wrong end of the justice system and, and, and the UK police? Um, it's, it is a, um, a difficult one, and it would be very naive for me to say that um, the black community don't have issues with um, police officers. Whether they get treated any differently um, is, a, is another issue. I mean, certainly from my background and my experience I joined the police with a view to arresting people who committed crime and looking after the the vulnerable and it didn't really matter what color the person who committed the offense was if they'd committed the offense and if there was evidence to to support that yeah. then they were then they were arrested um in relation to um i suppose black offenders the only time that we would sort of um, target people from the, well, from any community would be if there was intelligence-led um, policing. Yeah. So if we had a, a report of a number of robberies being committed in a particular area, um, all of the, the witness statements would be um, obtained and you'd build up a, um, almost a, an image of the the people that commit the offence, and if the victims are saying that the offender, or you know, describing the offender as a black male, and we have thirty robberies and twenty eight of them, the witnesses describe the offenders as being black. Then, 
it would make sense that the people that you would stop in a particular area yeah. um, would be black as opposed to stopping somebody who is white yeah. in relation to, or Asian in relation to um, a, uh, you know, a robbery if they didn't fit the, fit the description. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think sense. certainly at the moment, the, um, I think every day in the press, the, the police are always getting attacked. I'm, I'm in no way here to defend um, any particular police force or anything. And I'm only going on uh, on experience, you know. But the the police seem to be damned if they do, and and damned if they damned if they don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. That they are in a a pretty um, perilous position, you know. Um, whether that is earned or not is is always always seems to be the the discussion. Yeah. Um, Kirk, uh, what 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 are your thoughts around this? I mean, I largely agree <clears throat> with Graham about um, what, what, you, what you're saying is intelligence-led policing, yeah? I largely agree with, with that, but I think that one of the things that we've got to understand about stop and search is that for many of the people that we're talking about who are indeed stopped and, and then and searched, you've got to look at the figures of how many of them are positive. And, and I'll take it all the way back <clears throat> to a number of policy studies uh, reports on this and when you see the disparity in terms of you know the, the 10 times more likely mm. one has to say that we went through a period of training within the police service that spoke about what you know what are the reasons that you need before you can realistically stop and search something what has gone on since then is the use of what they call section 60 uh, uh, section 60 is a power where you can just stop people you don't specifically have to have a reason to stop and search them yeah. Uh, and then you can search them. And it's because sometimes the misuse of that power then makes it for any young person, um, you know, almost I could have said, unfair. And, and I'll say this. I asked my wife, I, I, uh, my wife's wife, she was a police officer as well. And I, I said to my wife, and I know she's female and the figures are lower. I said, how many times have you been stopped in your life? Yeah. And she said once, I asked a mate of mine who is my age, he's 63. I said to him, and, and where I live, they're more likely to drive Bentleys and Range Rovers than anything else, yeah? I said to him, how many times have you been stopped? So and he says, not once, yeah? And when I look at that and they ask my own sons, <clears throat> because they're mixed race, yeah. but I asked them, how many times they stopped, and it really surprised me that all of them have been stopped probably seven or eight times. Wow! We're talking from the seven, uh, the thirty-six-year-old to the twenty-six-year-old uh, and the twenty-three-year-old. Yeah, and and yeah, they drive reasonable cars and all of that. And you ask yourself why, and it comes to the point where, for instance, where we live, we literally have to tell some of their friends. Right, you know, when you come out of here, you've got to drive really properly because you will get a pull. And yeah. it's true, and they do. And so all I would say is this, is that one of the things that I think that's happened is we are not training police officers like we did for a period of time, you know, back in the 80s, if you remember, Graham, and, yeah. and certainly after Stephen Lawrence. That sort of training is no longer there, really, and, and we need that. 
And Kirk, can I, I mean, there's some really interesting sort of uh, points there. A couple of things. So I don't know whether you've got any stats or anybody's got any stats around those um, positive stops and search for black people versus obviously sort of white. You gave you some earlier stats. And also as well, I think didn't the McPherson report, which was a 350-page report, highlights some of those key sort of uh, shortfalls of uh, throughout sort of British policing. It's interesting to hear that actually the success of some of that training that clearly you highlighted started to have an impact. I guess what I'm sort of trying to understand is that big disparity between the training that um, uh, rose as a result of the McPherson report versus what training doesn't take place now I, I don't quite understand that dynamic it's 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 it really should be a no-brainer it should be specific and really specific because what what i will say to you is this the police service i joined in the 70s was massively different to the police service that i saw after 1999 it was hugely different a lot of this is locked up in the term political correctness and whether or not political correctness has changed the police service or has been utilised by some to say, we cannot do the job, yeah? And then, and I'll be really honest, and, and Graham already knows my political persuasion, but I will say to you that in 2010, the whole thing changed because it was considered by a certain government that we were being too politically correct and therefore we got to up the ante and go back to the likes of stop and search. <clears throat> and, but what had happened was the, the service, you know, after Stephen Lawrence's death, the McPherson inquiry and then the recommendations changed massively into a, a service that I think nearly all of us were truly proud of. Uh, we were doing the job. There were race equality schemes that went in 2010 as soon as the Tory party got in. It disappeared. The race equality scheme, which revolved around recruitment, retention, you know, progression in the police service. It was the same for women as well. But what has happened like, like today is, is, and, and what's unfortunate for the police is that there was always this aura going on around the police, but now it can be filmed. Everybody is seeing right. what it is. Whereas before it was all my word against yours and all of that, but now it's being filmed. It's right in the middle of everything that we're about on television, on the internet, which they all use, and, and we know everybody's got a camera now. And I and, and in to some extent, I think it's sometimes I think that's so unfair on, on the Bobby. Uh, you know, the Bobbies that are out there doing the job. But in, in truth, if you're doing nothing wrong, don't be afraid of the camera. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's a really sort of valid point. Let me just uh, one final question before I sort of um, pass back to Pete or Graham or anybody wants to talk. You're right. Um, I think most parts of society are now in the sort of uh, public domain through camera. Everybody films everything. But I guess my, my sort of passing comment is had that level of uh, visibility not been available, I'm sure we would be uh, looking at another um, death of a black man uh, in custody uh, with the police that perhaps may not have resulted in 
what we see now, sort of a, a upsurge in the Black Lives Matter movements, and actually us having dialogue and debate, and lots of corporations, businesses, and ordinary people now sort of uh, wanting to, I guess, uh, see some sort of impacted change. So uh, I, I guess you're right. Um, damned if you do, damned if you don't. But I suppose cameras, uh, whether it's police or any sort of uh, anyone who's holding the law, if you've got nothing to hide, then it shouldn't be a real issue. Sure. Um, sorry, I just wanted to cut in there because I think that's a, a good point you made there. I just want to share with you um, part of the, the Guardian article which I referred to, uh, it refers to uh, an online film that is now available called 1500 and Counting. Yeah. So the 1500 and Counting references uh, between, uh, from 1990 up to 2017, there were uh, 1500 deaths. Um, I'm not sure whether they said in custody or as a reference, the point of being in police custody or being restrained by the police, 1,500 deaths. Um, I don't know whether that's quite It is, it's 1,500 in deaths in police custody. Now, there is a bit of an issue on occasions in as much as sometimes when they refer to somebody, um, I think it's usually that the death is following contact with the police. Correct. It could well be that that individual was arrested 24 hours previously. Yes. Um, it's not necessarily that they have died whilst in the custody of police officers. It could be that their death occurred a short while after they've had some contact with the police. Correct. And it will be then right, right. Yeah. supported. It will be sent to uh, nine times out of ten the IOPC for an investigation. So it could well be that. For argument's sake, an individual has left police custody and five hours late. Okay. I think Graham's just... Uh, yeah, we were having fun. I think what he's, said, at, what at he's moment, saying is so. right, though. It, 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 it is right. Uh, in I don't know if I would definitely say that, you know, it's definitely within a police station or where police officers contact. are present. Yeah. Greg, just to let you know that we lost you for a few seconds there. I think the uh, the, the storm was travelling over, uh, over your abode and uh, just, just sort It of... is absolutely bucketing down over here. Yes. I'm, um, I'm, where I'm where did you um, where did you get up to? Well, I, th- I think I think the main thing is that we 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 got your point, and we, I think we're all in agreement that the point that you were making uh, yeah. in terms of the contact with police uh, was 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 the was the issue, but that contact. The death could have occurred after yes. uh, that individual yeah. uh, and, had been and, and in police custody. And it can be really minimal contact. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and remember, remember, the police arrest people who take drugs, or, you know, are drunk and the like. And it's mm. about getting the realism around that as a figure. Correct. And because when, when I was a bobby uh, under a chief constable, Paul Scott Lee where he used to, I, I chaired the Black and Asian Police Association. Mm-hmm. And so around the time of a couple of quite sensitive deaths in police custody, he came into his office and asked me to literally have the gravitas to knock on the door of the Chief Superintendent of Complaints and ask those questions having come out of the training school. And the truth of the matter is this, is that figures can distort things sometimes, Yeah. yeah. And give people the perception that the, 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 the police are 
wholly violent when in fact they're not. Believe me when I say, and again, uh, Graham will know this, I will challenge anybody on yeah. anything, yeah? Especially yeah. when I know it to be wrong yeah. or, or there's a case or there is a question rather to be answered, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Just the question. So all deaths where police have had contact should yeah. be investigated and the like. Yeah. But to get it into its real terms, and that is the use of violence to do the job because there are occasions when you need violence to restrain somebody yeah. and, and the like, or indeed you're a firearms officer and the like. Those occasions do exist. However, one has to say is that we have to be more open mm. about, uh, more open from the get-go mm. in these investigations. What happens with the police service is is that when these things happen at the very beginning, we are too quiet. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And why, why is that? Um, just, I mean, obviously both of you have left the services, but in your opinion, yeah. what, what's the rationale behind that? I think some of it was to do with, the, there was always subjudice would be a word that was banded um, mm -hmm. around. I don't know whether it was a fear by senior officers to want to come forward and... Um, put out a statement, which I think you are seeing more and more now. Certainly in the Met Police, um, there's been statements after various um, stop and search issues, the one recently with uh, the MP, um, um, oh, I can't think of his name, uh, Butler, and then with the the two um, athletes. Athletes, uh, yeah. yeah. And then the <clears throat> the lad where the, the one individual who was arrested, and there's um, video of a police officer who appears to have a knee on the individual's yeah, neck, um, albeit for a short period of time, that the police have come out and they have offered some sort of um, statement in relation to it. I'm fully with Kirk in relation to that. The police have been missing um, an opportunity of, right from the get-go, putting forward the police side of events. Because there are there's, there's always... There's two sides to every story, and somewhere in the middle, you get the uh, you get the truth. Um, so I think it is important that the police do are more open, and particularly these days with body worn camera, yeah. you know the evidence is there, so you can capture what's been said, um, the behaviour of the individuals who um, who were saying that, and that's not just the the police officers; that's anybody that the police are, are coming into contact with. And then just a, a quick point while I think about it. Um, in relation to, obviously, you're mentioning the fact that, you know, 15,000 deaths. Um, over what period of time? Was. 1, Sorry. 1, Sorry, 1,500. Yeah. Um, what period of time was that? I think between 1990 and 2017, if I remember rightly. S Sorry. Between 1990 and 2017. Right, okay. I think the other thing to, to sort of flag up um, there is the amount of interaction that the police have um, with citizens on a day-to-day -day basis you know you were talking uh, over that particular time millions um, if not hundreds of millions of interactions with members of the public where nobody has died and whilst you know 1500 is a is a large number if you take that into um, comparison over that period of time it's it's you know probably below 0.50 I know statistic, statistically, if you're sat yeah. there looking at that particular figure and analysing yeah. it that way, yeah, absolutely, it would feel like a, a small percentage. But I suppose 
for um, you know again for the, well, families. For the families that are involved. It's, yeah. it's it's a massive impact. Well, I think not, not, only, not only for the families. I think we're, we're, we're talking about a community as well. Like, you know that that fifteen hundred. Yeah, is yeah. In, in relation to a specific part of the community. Now, you know, um, I, I appreciate that those figures um, need to be um, extrapolated in, in terms of what, what they actually mean and yeah. uh, uh, what incidences, incidences were in custody or after custody and all that type of thing. But my, my point is, if the community see those figures, yeah, <laughs> are they justified in having a grievance, having fear of the police and the justice system in this country because i think that's where that's where it comes i mean i was brought up uh by a single mother and she always said to my brother and i you know watch out for the police don't trust them if you see them move away go away don't ever you know don't ever get in the car sort of with them sort of thing yeah so there was this sort of natural uh, fear and um, almost like a, it, it was a game of survival. I mean, young young guys growing up, you know, we're we're going to get up to a little bit of stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but where the police were, 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 were involved, as a young man growing up, some of their interaction was over the top. No? From I'm, I'm young just going to prove that I can actually talk. So I thought I'd come in. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Max. All right. I've got a question to ask, basically, about changing the direction of this conversation a little bit. It's about the observation of the police force as being an instrument of the establishment and, and their role. They often are focused on this type of crime, but there's another type of crime as well. There's, there's white-collar crime. And what kind of resources and effort and consistency do US ex-police officers think that there is in pursuing those types of crimes because we always hear about even non-violent crimes of selling drugs or whatever it is that's going on in the street corners but we don't hear about prosecutions of crimes that are costing our, our um, businesses or our communities huge amounts of money through business and fraud and um, breach of trust or, or whatever it is that's going on, um, intellectual property, <laughs> price-fixing, Ponzi schemes, stuff like that. Um, any thoughts on those kind of things? Um, I'll quickly kick off with that. There's very little that the police do in respect to it. To a certain extent, a lot of the financial establishments have got their own investigation departments. Um, the police would be swamped if they dealt with every every single sort of piece of, of white collar crime. Um, and to a certain extent, it's about prioritising what the, the general public want um, in relation to the fact that they want to see police officers out on patrol. They want police officers dealing with people who commit burglary, people who commit violent offences, people who commit murder, um, rapists, paedophiles, some of that perhaps driven by the uh, the media. Um, there is, uh, I totally agree, that there's probably more money lost through white-collar crime. Um, you know, when you think of some of the individuals who 
have been dealt with recently in relation to banking frauds, people who work for big companies down in London. And you're talking millions and millions and millions of, mm. of, of pounds. Um, and it is wrong. Um, my personal uh, opinion is whether or not that's something that should be investigated by the police. The police do have um, a team um, called the Serious Frauds. Uh, well, there's an organisation called the Serious Frauds Organisation who work closely with um, fraud departments within the, the police forces. Unfortunately, they're under-resourced. Um, it's got, as, Carl, uh, as Kirk has already alluded to, for the last 10 years, <clears throat> the police have been to, um, you know, defunded almost for the last 10 yes, years. Um, the, the, the fact that there's, there's now the number of police officers uh, well, the same number of police officers today as it was in 1974. And when you consider that the population of this country has probably doubled since 1974, um, you know, there, there just isn't enough. And then also in relation to technology, the fact that an awful lot of this white collar crime is committed cyber crime over um, computers, telephones. Um, it, it's difficult to, um, to police. You see, yeah. the reason why I ask the question is because the impression you're giving me is very much that uh, street crimes and robberies and all that kind of stuff are seen as the low hanging fruit, which is nice and easy to get. But there's, there's um, an article I was reading about from Jeffrey Raymond where it's, uh, it's called the rich get rich uh, and the poor get prison. And it describes the criminal justice as a carnival mirror. And what he's talking about when he talks about that is the reflection of our society. We think that police are dealing with the serious crimes, but in reality, the police are dealing with the crimes that that they are dealing with. And yet we looking in the police as a mirror think that the serious crimes are all the street crimes or even the nonviolent crimes. But the reality is there, as you yourself appointed to, there's yeah. a le level of criminality going on. That's very expensive um, and nonviolent, but yeah. it's violent in a sense. People kill themselves yeah. over money. Yeah. So there's a violent aspect of it and it's not I don't think with. there's a, an appetite for the by the the government to um to tackle that particular type of of crime yeah. because, because it's, it's been friends. seen as well yes uh, you know they, they they'll say that it's a victimless crime in many respects and it isn't because it has a massive impact on the likes of you and I mm. because we have to pay more for car insurance for house insurance um you know any financial transactions um it's costing us you and I, money, and, and other people. So, yes, I totally understand where you're coming from and totally agree that that type of criminality should be looked at more, um, whether it's the police that should do it or whether a, another agency should be set up with people I'm who have got skills to do that mm. um, because it's a completely different sort of, of law um, in relation to, um, to that side of, of finance as well. So I think it's, it's, one of the, sorry, Kirk, go on. One of the things, it's investment. If you want the police service to do that, because in the 70s and 80s, we did. Mm. We investigated yeah. all of that stuff. But mm. as time has gone on, and with um, the, you know, the, the change in the way that policing has become, because we believe that policing was centralised in neighbourhoods, and well, this is what the community wants. And, and for all intents and purposes as well, the biggest money houses... More often than not, we think we know how much fraud is going on. We do not. Because mm -hmm. most of the big financial organisations do not report it 
because they don't want to be found out, yeah, that their systems weren't capable of stopping it. Yeah. Now, the serious um, fraud office and, and, and the like, who are there and, and responsible for it, they don't take, you know, you know, the credit card crime, which is massive, you know, all that sort of criminal deception that goes on, stuff that we used to deal with. But if you are going to, and as Graham has said, effectively defund the police, make the police make savings from the budgets that they've already got, it's almost impossible to do the white collar stuff. And I'll tell you something as well, and, and, and it goes back to what you were saying about it's not just the police service, it's the Crown Prosecution Service as to whether they think, okay, then how long is this this offence going to take a court? What's the realistic prospect of conviction? Yeah? yeah. And then even if you get that far and you convict them, we know that the sentences are minuscule. Yeah? Yeah. If you commit an armed robbery and you get away with, say, uh, £250,000, yeah? But you commit, uh, you will go to prison for probably an armed robbery with a gun for probably 25, 30 years. It, sometimes more than murder. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. for robbing all that cash. Mm. But if you go and defraud somebody of millions upon millions, you're likely to end up with five or eight years. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I have never truly understood that. Yeah. But as we say, and it is true, it's locked up with those people who consider themselves to be the upper echelons of society. Mm. Yeah? yeah. And because, it is, because that is the case, it looks like the police don't want to do anything. But mm. for instance... I already know, and I spoke to somebody who worked in one of these offices, uh, where they, they said to me, um, it was something that went on with us, you were absolutely wasting your time. Nobody's going to look at it. And, and then that wasn't a case of, of blaming the police. It was literally, you know, fraud investigators from Amazon, for instance, yeah? Right. You're never going to get anywhere with it. And I do think this, though, the police force of the 20s, 2020s, has got to be looking to see what it can do for the community who needs it most. Mm. And I think the white collar people don't need it as much as, uh, as we people in the communities and in, in poorer communities, where quite simply one of the issues is the fear of crime. Yeah. It's the yeah. fear of violent crime. Yeah. It's, it's the fear of sort of those domestic crimes about having your house burgled. Yeah. Mm. They're not bothered whether the co-op or Tesco get turned over, but we are bothered if they walk into our houses and take things. Mm. We are bothered about our children yeah. going out and being shot or stabbed or assaulted. <clears throat> and that's the bit that we need to get, get right because I'm going to go back to the, the figures. Yeah. I can remember when I was at the detective training school and listening to a particular detective superintendent who basically was talking about how do we manage the press because the press tell a story, which invariably is the story that they want to tell, like the number 1,500, yeah? yeah. It looks better than 0.05%, yeah? Correct. But we yeah. don't do anything to correct that. So these reporters who are doing that sort of thing, we're not in decent enough communication to manage what they actually put out hmm. by getting them to tell the truth and getting them to tell the truth early enough. All of this does come back to training, and I'm not talking about training of the junior officers that, that go out on the streets and all of that. I'm talking about training of senior officers, yeah? Get in there with the editors, get to know them, get communication, uh, communication right with them. Neighbourhood policing has all but disappeared. 
And the consequence of that is, if you have 20 burglaries in the area that I live over the next couple of days, you will have a Section 60 order for stop and search, yeah? <clears throat> if you're a black kid coming into this area and just say some of the descriptions of being black kids or Asian kids or whatever, you're going to be pulled, yeah? But because we haven't got decent enough neighbourhood policing, which is what we need, then the police will always be a hostage to fortune, always. Yes. Because people, we, we, we just don't know our police officers anymore. Whereas in my younger days, we, you know, cops knew everybody and everybody knew their cops. I would absolutely agree with you yeah. on that. I, you know, as, <coughs> as you just said that, um, it's something that Pete referenced earlier about having a sort of fear of police. And mine, mine was slightly different where, George was our local police officer, and uh, he knew my mother. I'm, you know, my mother raised five of us single-handedly, and I think from that perspective, if we were in trouble, I was more fearful of being marched back home by George as PC, because I know my mum would absolutely in front of me, slap me around the head at the time to get inside, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting how... You're right. Sort of, um, I think there are no easy sort of immediate sort of fixes, but I think most of the conversations always come back to education, training, actually sort of getting people to think in the way that I guess uh, treats and respects each other as a human being. That that that's the that's the thing that was absolutely missing. yeah. You see, I, I look at it from a no from a different side. I, I see that there's a lot of money being siphoned off by the upper echelons of, of society, leaving very little money. And that's kind of where we get caught in the cycle of continually um, defunding everything yeah. that the society requires. And yeah. there's an aspect of the higher echelons that need to be sorted in order to uh, free up the money because the money is actually been stolen. In my, I'd, I'd fully, my opinion. Yeah, I'd fully Sorry, agree. Max, when, you say, when you say sorted, what do you sorted. mean by sorted? <laughs> Uh, sorted is something that's way above my pay grade, but it's uh, illegal activity that's very expensive. Sorry? Investigated. Investigated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'll tell you a simple way. Right. Section 27 of the Misuse of Drugs Act, I'm trying to think about 1971, I think, yeah? Back in the old days, what used to happen was, if we were dealing with a drug dealer and we managed to get all the evidence, do the raid, and come across, say, that million pounds, yeah? Section 27 of the drugs were, uh, of the Misuse of Drugs Act meant that that money had to go back into policing. Yeah? Right, okay. Now, vast majority of the other money that's recovered, so to speak, where does it go? The Treasury. Yeah. Do yeah. the Treasury give it to the police? You could do this. You could find <laughs> yeah. yeah. You could. I suppose the, yeah. the other one in relation to that as well is motoring offences. Because yeah. everybody thinks like that the, the fines that are, are dished out by the police or for the speed cameras all comes back to the police. It doesn't. It goes to the, the Treasury Department and, you know, the, the, the people don't do it. Uh, but taking up your, your points, yeah, it's not just the police that's been underfunded. It's, you know, the, the local education authority, uh, youth <laughs> services, social services, mental health. Um, and that all has a massive impact on society to yeah talking to friends of mine that are still in the police now they are going to more jobs in and around mental health and mm -hmm. it's mental health that um sort of kicks off 
the, the police involvement. And police officers now are spending so much time in hospitals babysitting um, people who've been arrested under the Mental Health Act um, because there isn't somebody to come and see them and because there's no hospital beds for them to go to. Um, mm. And it does have a, a, a massive impact. It's not just um, policing. It's a whole holistic sort of view in relation to all those agencies that are there to support and help vulnerable people. And that's so been... I, I, I would completely... have thought that um, social care, that would be something that social care would be responsible for uh, uh, rather than police. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is, I mean, as I said, dealing with mental health, yeah. you know, that those individuals should be getting support and help from National Health Service, mental health teams, yeah. um, home support, and there just isn't that. And I mean, and I can speak from experience. Um, I've got a 27-year-old lad who is autistic. Um, he's currently being um, under a, one of the local mental health teams. <clears throat> It, it does take an awful lot of time and effort to try and get some support around just one individual. And yeah. my lad is one of thousands of people in and around just Dudley on its own hmm. that just aren't getting the, the, the support, the level of support that they, that they need. And, and, and people who are incarcerated, people in the prison system. Massively, yeah. And, and, and especially when they are due to come out, when you know that they should have been assessed, with regard to mental health issues, were never assessed. They can be in their ten because some of the work that I do is that I actually pick up some people who are considered to be supposedly the worst of the worst and their behaviour in prison, but they're coming back out on the street because they've done their time. Some of them recall so many times that they have no choice but to release them. But you know that they need a mental health assessment. You can't get them. You cannot. They And the easiest way for them to deal with these... Uh, a lot of young men, young black men, is to say they've got a personality disorder, something yeah. that can't be treated, yeah? And they put them back out, and they let them go out with, oh, I forget how much is it, 40-odd quid, yeah? And they're back on the street, they've got nothing, what are they going to do, yeah. yeah? The truth of the matter is that the whole system hasn't really learned, and I'm on about now, about police, the judiciary, the the public health authorities have not learned to work together and that's that's the biggest travesty that we have and yeah. that's because the government won't fund it properly yeah and we see time and time again yeah. i see police officers and if we go back to the issue of diversity um time and time <laughs> again i see these people who are literally thrown out in the streets on the you know between seven and eight o'clock in the morning and literally they have nothing they are already anxious. They've already told that they're, you know, they, they've got mental health issues and they're just thrown out there to get on with whatever. Well, the reality is if you come out of prison like that and your best mate says, I know how you can earn a hundred pounds, you're going to be straight back into the game. There's yeah. a cycle there, isn't there? That's there is. Yeah. But yeah, the, government, the government doesn't see it. As police officers, we've, myself and Graham, have now got the opportunity to truly reflect. When you're at the coalface, so to speak, you do the job that's in front of you. You try and do as much as you can. That's why I ended up with, you know, like a staff uh, support organisation and the like. But more often than not, it's getting on with the work of the day, what's in front of you and that you've got to resolve and the like. On this side, now we have one foot on the land and one foot in the sea, we can reflect back and say, like, 
perhaps this isn't, isn't quite right. And when you go back to um, issues to do with stop and search and all of that, my view on, on this is that one, police officers um, retire very early and there would be a lot of them that would remain a lot longer. Their experience is lost. Right. And in losing that sort of experience, the police force, uh, the police service has suffered. I do believe that. So when I look at the service as a whole, I now look at the nation as a whole. And when you want, uh, we, we live in the UK, we're very much a blame culture. Yeah. Mm. But if this was a school headmaster's report, it would be could do better, but it would be everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to question. We're just sort of running out of, a, a little bit of time. I just want to, get, I just want to quickly get okay. back to uh, a point that we kind of started on. And that's in terms of the police as a service and the, the UK justice system, the perception is that institutionally there's a problem. Uh, and black people have a, uh, as a community, have a problem with those institutions. They don't believe that they are treated fairly, okay? Uh, mm. Whether that is a perception or, 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 or a reality, it still remains a, a, a problem. It's not helped by the narrative that you hear from the media, because they, they see their preferences for salacious headlines. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's going to get you know, um, their audience figures up or sell more yeah. newspapers. And those sort of crimes tend to be you know, drug-related, violent crimes, crimes in, that involve uh, you know, the ethnic community. So it, it, it looks like, and again, just, just judging on the conversation that we've had tonight, and there was a piece about the, the types of crime that, that crimes that are committed and investigated and the types of crimes that are committed and not investigated as much. It appears that if black people were to turn their hand to um, more... Um, like cyber crime or financial crime, then we might, we may have less of a problem. Is it is it that yes. we're choosing the right the wrong type of crime <laughs> to commit? Or maybe black people will be targeted for cyber crime, and maybe society's um, anxiety would be, develop over cyber crime. So which, 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 which brings me back to the the institution uh, of police and the the, the justice system. Um, there is a culture uh, in every large organisation. I think people are still trying to decide whether the, the culture within the police force and the justice system is one that is um, not to black people's advantage. And you know, recent media uh, reports of athletes and MPs being stopped or dragged out of their cars doesn't help. What, what needs to be done to, to change that perception, change that attitude, give black people a little bit more confidence that, do you know what, you can get a fair shake. Um, yeah. you, you aren't targeted. Um, yeah. It's just the fact that, you know, you're living in the wrong community, wrong area, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, I think picking up something on, on the Earl said in relation to, you know, if police officers aren't doing anything wrong, then they shouldn't worry about people running around with mobile phone cameras and I suppose you can turn that on its head and say that if black people haven't done anything wrong, they shouldn't worry about being stopped and searched. Um, 
having had a, a quick look at some of the government figures that they were they were out, and I know a lot of stop and search, particularly in the Met, it's all in and around um, knife crime. But I think that the stats that show that if black men are four times more likely to be the victim of murder and black men are 8% more likely to be the perpetrator of those offences. Um, whether it's dialogue between community leaders and the police that needs to be to be done to, to do this. Um, because the, whether it's a very naive view from my side of things is that the stop and search is, is to try and reduce people being murdered. Yeah. Graham, could I just yeah. interject with one, one <laughs> reflection of what you just said? Because if black people have nothing to be scared of with regards to stop and search, then yeah. that is equally true of young white men. Absolutely, yes. And yeah. why should that, that policy then not be pushed out into white society also? Um, it should be. I mean, you know, that one of the phrases that I really detest is black on black crime. Because there's no such thing as black on black crime. It's just crime. crime. Yeah. yeah. You know, you don't hear of if a white man strikes another white man, it's white on white crime. It's mm. a man has been murdered. Yeah. Um, so from that point, that another media you know, spin. Do you think? Yeah, I, I dislike I dislike that that term. Black communities are very often very small, so therefore it yeah. can look like that. Let, let yeah. just, can I just interject there? Because you know, now I've sat, sat on a lot of these national bodies. Yeah, looking at issues to do with black on black crime gun crime knife crime and the like and i will say this to you <clears throat> in terms of who's most likely to murder who uh, blacks kill blacks whites kill whites asians <laughs> kill asians that's a fact yeah when we look and, and i'll put this out there and, I, and i'll tell you where he, where he, things are wrong when i was involved in the police service and sitting on the uh, independent advisory group for uh, the association of chief police officers as it was community firearms group. We looked at something called Operation Ventara. Yeah? Do you remember that? Ventara yeah. was really a database. It was a database of names of people who were supposed to be gang nominals. There were 10,000 names on the database and every single one was black. Right. When, this is myself and Peter O'Neill, who I think you know, yeah? He was yeah. a detective superintendent. And we, we asked, you know, where's the science behind who actually makes that list? Yeah? And when I look at, when people talk to me about stop and search and the like, I'll take you to Salford and I'll show you some of the most violent people in England, in Salford, who are all white, yeah? Mm -hmm. Who are shooting each other at the same rate that black kids are being saying, like, almost mm -hmm. as though this self-fulfilling prophecy that we are, we are a violent race, yeah? Mm -hmm. And I can show you groups like that all over the country that I've worked. And I always think this about when um, we look at, you know, the, the issue of um, crime amongst races and the like, because the real figures are never really put out there. They are just slanted in one particular way rather than the truth, so to speak, yeah. because you're more likely to read in a newspaper where a black kid has killed a black kid rather than when a white kid has killed a white kid. And that's locked up in the description of the people yeah. that were involved. They don't describe it. You will say a man 25 murdered another man uh, um, uh, 26 years ago. But a black man 18 killed a black man that was 32. Yeah. That's what you see. And therefore, all of our society truly believes that we're a violent race. Mm. 
and, and yet, yet, like I said, I'll take you to Liverpool. I'll show you what Liverpool can. And, and here's the big one. When I was working on the Guns and Gangs thing, right, so this is like sort of 2000, 2004. I went to Glasgow. Glasgow made everywhere look like toy town. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and the gangs were really families, yeah? Yeah, but man. they would on on you know on their mobile phones they would message each other meet over such a such a hill and it was like Bannockburn, yeah, yeah? yeah, where they would run down with machetes and all of that. Now in the UK we didn't know really about it. We knew yeah. about it in Strathclyde, we didn't truly know about it, and it's the way in which it's reported. And yeah. I, I, I do believe this, and I'll say this one thing: if we want to change this police service, we need a royal commission on the police. There hasn't been a Royal Commission on the police since 1962. A Royal Commission gives powers to change a police service. Now, the amount of inquiries that you will have, which gives you recommendations, will change the job. I adored the job. I had a charm life, as you well know. Yeah, I loved it. It, was, it, was, it wasn't graft to me. I loved it. But I was able to say, like, you know, some things are not right. And the policing of 2020 is totally different from the policing in 1962. So if we're going to change it and have the true representation, because the, what did Robert Peel say in 1829, I think? He said, the police is the community and the community is the police. That's not how our police service looks today. Which I, I think, thank, thank you, Kirk, for that. And, and it's a great way to just draw an end to this discussion. Thank you all very, very much. It's been enlightening. I thirst for more. Therefore, I hope Kirk and Graham, uh, if we extend a, a further invite to you, you'll come back and maybe we can continue this discussion. I certainly would love to have Absolutely. you both back. Absolutely, yes. Because no, no brainer on that one. Yeah, it's great. Insightful. Yeah. Um, Sorry, we're so talking to you. <laughs> no, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. No, it's been, been brilliant. It's um, been perfect. There's a lot uh, but, of takeaways from... Um, from what both of you have said, the discussions we've had. And, mm -hmm. you know, for me personally, these sessions that we're having and series, they are really sort of starting to help build my history and knowledge of all things about Black Lives Matter, whether it's education, policing, whether it's sort of impacts, obviously, uh, recruitment, all the sort of different aspects. So, yeah, it's, a, it's been a great discussion tonight. Thanks. Thank you. Thank and, you. And that's where we'll have to draw a close to the discussion. Thank you to all of my guests on the panel. Uh, this has been Ordinary People. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.